0: Last week, we began a new series on the problem of evil using the Hebrew wisdom literature, specifically Job, to lay the foundation for what's ahead. As we read through the wisdom literature of the Bible, the problem of evil surfaces again and again. This idea or this question, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why are we seemingly surrounded by constant evil on all sides? Just this week, a teenager in Indianapolis went on a three-day killing spree, his target's Seem to have been completely random. An 18-year-old Pakistani schoolteacher died Wednesday having been beaten and burned alive after refusing a marriage proposal. And there were more than 75 similar incidents just last year. In Arizona, a mother stabbed her three children to death. And these are some of the milder incidents of unspeakable horror I uncovered from just a cursory reading of this week's news. And believe me, I could go on and on and on. And this is, you know, out in the world. It often feels abstracted. What about in your own life? Some of you may have faced physical and emotional abuse in your life. Some of you may have lost parents or children or a spouse. Some of you have been betrayed or abandoned. Someone you know is sick Or dying or has died. And the point isn't to upset you or to disgust and repel you with all these reminders of how cruel the world can be, but to remind us of the real stakes of the problem of evil. Our wrestling with the problem of evil must deal with suffering, sickness, sin, and death in all its forms, whether it's adultery, cancer, or the molestation and murder of infants. These are the horrors to which we draw our attention when we ask, Where is God in this? Not just the evil out there on the news, but the evil we've seen, the evil we are seeing and will see in our own lives. Does evil of this kind imply that God is incapable of putting a stop to it? Does it suggest that God is indeed capable, but somehow he's unconcerned? Does this mean that God doesn't exist at all? Or is there a better way to understand the problem of evil? And Tonight, I will suggest that yes, there is. An answer to the problem of evil is called a theodicy, and last week we went through great effort to admit that every theodicy has some amount of holes in it, meaning there are no easy answers, but there are answers. And tonight, as we wade into very difficult waters, I I ask that we do our best to approach this conversation with open minds and with a tremendous amount of humility. If nothing else, things are about to get interesting. Before we end, we'll have talked about John Piper, God killing babies, tsunamis, and who is to blame when you get a flat tire. So buckle up because tonight may feel a bit more like a seminary lecture than a sermon, but I think that if we put in the work, this evening can be massively beneficial as we make our way through the rest of the scriptures. Are you guys ready? To begin, I want to address a very commonly held and I think dangerous theodicy, and that is the idea that God controls everything that happens in the universe, good or evil, In theology, this is called meticulous providence. Now, for about the first 500 years of the church, we have no indication whatsoever that anyone believed God was in control of everything. Rather, the opposite, actually. All of the earliest church fathers and theologians argued against the idea of an all-controlling God, as this idea was said to undermine the concept of free will. And the tide first began to change with a church father called Augustine, who was first to equate the concept of God's sovereignty with the idea of control, meaning everything that happens, happens because God makes it happen, including evil and suffering. For Augustine, when we experience terrible suffering, quote, we ought not to attribute our suffering to the will of men or of angels or of any created spirit, but rather to God's will. Augustine's ideas remained sort of undeveloped and were at first outright rejected by the church councils as heresy, but they lingered even so, and they were eventually further developed, made much more hardcore, and eventually popularized by a 15th century uh, French theologian named John Calvin. Today, meticulous providence is part and parcel of a theological tradition often called Calvinism or Reformed theology. For advocates of meticulous providence, God controls the universe unilaterally, meaning God is in ultimate control of every single detail in the universe. And everything that happens is God's will. Of course, human beings are still held responsible for what they do because they do what they want. It's just that God determines what they want. Before Calvin and before Augustine, when theologians talked about God's will, the word never meant control. You know, God's will was a way of describing God's moral intention for the universe or what God wants to happen. As in, it's God's will that a husband and wife remain faithful to one another. Now, that may happen or it may not happen, but it is God's will. But when Augustine or Calvin spoke of God's will, they intended the word as a synonym for basically whatever does happen because it's all controlled by God. When a husband's faithful to his wife, it was because God willed it to be so, and therefore God's will. When a husband cheats on his wife, it's because God willed it to be so. It was God's will. And yes, humans are responsible, and yes, we should hate evil, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to God. Of course, meticulous providence is a widely held belief today, and because of this, I would argue many followers of Jesus think of God's will in this way. And I want to show you guys a clip of perhaps the most famous modern proponent of the meticulous providence view.
1: It's right for God to slaughter women and children any time he pleases. Um, God gives life, and he takes life. Everybody who dies dies because God wills that they die. So God is taking life every day. He will take 50,000 lives today. Life is in God's hand. God decides when your last heartbeat will be. And whether it ends through cancer or whether it ends through um, a bullet wound, God governs. So God is God. God rules and governs everything. And everything he does is just and right and good. God owes us nothing. Uh, if, if, if I were to drop dead right now or a, uh, a suicide bomber downstairs were to blow this building up and I would be blown to smithereens, God would have done me no wrong. He would have been, done David no wrong. He, he does no wrong to anybody when he takes their life at age two weeks or at age 90, 92.
0: Now this, of course, isn't some sort of uh, dirty secret. It's not a quote lifted from its context. Uh, Dr. Piper believes very earnestly that every single thing, good or evil, major or minor, even the specific flight patterns of dust particles, he says, are specifically controlled and determined by God. So the, the specific development and spread of cancer throughout the body of a child, that's God. The bullets that enter the victims of a mass shooting Rather than those that remain in the chamber That's God The mother who stabbed her children this week The the teenager on a killing spree The woman burned alive in Pakistan All God And maybe for some of you, John Piper seems extreme, but honestly, a a tremendous amount of people seem to assume this very thing, even if they haven't developed their own theology on the subject. Think of the cliches we often hear in the midst of tragedy. God is sovereign. God is in control. God has a plan. Everything happens for a reason. God knows what he's doing. This is what a great deal of intelligent, Jesus-loving people like John Piper believe. And the idea tonight isn't simply to take them to task, prove how much smarter we are. Tonight isn't about railing on what we don't believe, but since so, so many followers of Jesus often make these kinds of assumptions, and since this idea is so popular today, I think it's tremendously important to have this conversation because here's the danger. For many, this view seems to offer comfort, at least on the front end, but often this view brings an outright crisis of faith, on the back end when those around us say god is sovereign but my baby daughter died during childbirth god is in control but my son was molested by a trusted family friend god has a plan but it's been five years since the divorce with not a single redemptive thing to show for it for some there's an initial comfort okay God must be up to something I can trust, but eventually, God is often warped into a moral monster. Of course, this is the exact pattern we saw in Job last week. Job Job assumes that when tragedy strikes, it was God that killed his family and destroyed his livelihood, and he takes comfort in the idea. But as the story carries on, quotes like, may the name of the Lord be praised, slowly devolve into quotes like, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Job rails against God, accusing him of cruelty and injustice. In fact, many, if not most, critics of belief in God in general seem to presuppose meticulous providence in their critique. Famous atheist Stephen Fry was was asked what he would say if confronted by the reality of God upon death, and he answered immediately with, Bone children and cancer? How dare you? Because Fry assumes the paradigm must be that God controls everything. One of my uh, favorite musicians, David Bazan, once a disciple of Jesus in the Reformed tradition, went on to denounce Jesus altogether. And in one song, Bazan sings, when you set the table, when you chose the scale, did you write a riddle that you knew we would fail? Did you make them tremble so they would tell the tale? Did you push us when we fell? Now, With respect to my intelligent, Jesus-loving friends in the meticulous providence camp, I do not believe this. While one says, everyone who dies dies because God wills that they die, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The scriptures tell a detailed story of a God who is at war with evil, not in collusion with it. For Paul death and all its impending and ensuing suffering are God's enemies, not God's will. And what does that mean? Well, to begin, it means that every single day events transpire that are not only outside of God's will, but that are the very opposite of God's will. Yes, God is all-powerful and yet does not always get his way. By God's own design, both human beings and spiritual beings have been given genuine freedom to either partner with God or to rebel against him. And when rebellion comes, evil and suffering follow on its heels. The world is a terrifyingly free, wild, beautiful, and dangerous place. Evil is the byproduct of our creative freedom. Dr. Gary Brugieres puts it this way, evil is the result of the morally significant free actions of God's creatures. Evil does not originate in God's will nor His plan. Evil is the necessary contingency of a world truly free to choose God or to reject Him. This is the story that the scriptures tell in vivid detail. Not a world under God's unilateral control, but a world created from an overflow of God's love and then overrun by a hostile invader, evil. God isn't up to some mysterious greater good by causing evil. He's not merely helpless to stop evil. God is at war with evil. God's end goal in Jesus is to free the world from the awful grip of evil once and for all. And in the meantime, our world is a battlefield marked by the awful visibility of collateral damage. That is a very different understanding of evil than to look out at the horror all around us and say, God is in control. And for some, this view often has the reverse effect of meticulous providence and that it seems scary on the front end. Wait, are you saying God is not in control? Yes. If what you mean by control is the unilateral, all-or-nothing determination of every outcome, I am absolutely saying God is not in control. But I would argue, rather than inviting a crisis of faith on the back end, this view brings with it maturity and hope More on that in just a bit. What I'm working to unpack here this evening is often called a spiritual warfare theodicy. The very wise statement of Van City Church comes from Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And with his prayer, Jesus clarifies that the heavens, or God's space, are a place where things transpire the way that God would like them to, while earth, on the other hand, is a place where God's will is not always done. On earth, there are other wills at work. First, there is, of course, God's will, not to be discounted. And I don't use the term personally, God is sovereign, because it has been hopelessly tethered to meticulous providence. But, of course, all followers of Jesus believe God is sovereign. We just disagree on what that means. I would argue an adequate replacement for the term, God is sovereign, would be God is king. Notice this term in no way implies unilateral control over the universe, and yet still ascribes royal, sovereign rule to God. So yes, God is king, and as such, he can do whatever he would like to do. I do not, however, believe there is any reason to suspect God is constantly overriding other wills to get things done. Of course, as I'm going to reiterate several times tonight, the fact that God does not meticulously control everything does not somehow imply that he isn't involved and actively working In the universe in fact the scriptures paint a picture of a God who gets his hands dirty in the messiness of the evil we cause he even seems to use that evil creatively one great example in the Bible is the exile of Israel after hundreds of years of warning after warning that the time has come for Israel to repent of her persistent worship of other gods God finally lifts his hands of protection from his people saying enough is enough and the nation of Babylon floods Israel like an evil tsunami. It destroys the temple, the the city of Jerusalem, and enslaves the Hebrew people. And yes, there are instances in the scriptures of suffering that transpires as either punishment for sin, like the story of the exile, or as discipline for followers of Jesus, but I want to make three quick points about this reality before we move on. First, the scriptures never put forth the explanation that God causes people to suffer as a punishment or discipline as a general explanation for the problem of evil. In fact, it's most often emphatically stated to be something else, uh, randomness or the work of Satan. And second, there's a world of difference between, say, encouraging disciples of Jesus who are under persecution by you know, reminding them that maybe God is refining their faith There's a huge difference between that and encouraging the mother of a stillborn child to understand that baby's death as a way of God teaching her a lesson. God is always at work to bring good out of evil, yes, but to assume evil as God's discipline is presumptuous and dangerous. And finally, my last point on this, the scriptures do not ascribe God's discipline as in keeping with his sort of eternal unfolding plan, but I would argue rather as a necessary response to sinful choices against which God warns and waits, meaning God is responsive. If you do this, I'll do this. Please do this so that I can do this. He, he hasn't necessarily planned to spank you from eternity past. He, he works collaboratively in human history. And in any event, these sorts of instances are very rare. They should never be assumed outright. So God's will is but one factor in a world full of wills. The second consideration is our will. In 1969, filmmaker George A. Romero altered the trajectory of American cinema, cinema with his movie Night of the Living Dead. For Romero, the truly horrifying movie monsters, not Frankenstein or the Wolfman or the Mummy, all popular monsters in the cinematic pantheon at the time, it wasn't even the horrifying you know, flesh-eating ghouls that he himself depicted on screen. The truly scary movie monster is man. And what Romero has said many times over in his films is that as surely as evil can be located outside, it's often as close to home as you and I. Many of us think of the world in terms of us, the good guys, them, the bad guys, and we overlook the darkness that often lurks within. And we all contribute to the evil of the world in ways great and small, either our sin or poor judgment or bad decisions or immaturity. Even the way we shop and eat and live our lives can affect the world and others in the world in horrible ways. And, of course, none of these things are God's will. They're for you and I to accept responsibility. And even though darkness lurks within, it lurks beyond us as well in the will of others. Our freedom isn't carried out in a vacuum. Every human is autonomous, you know, within varying degrees of their own cognitive capabilities. And where there are people with freedom, you will eventually find that freedom abused. Famous psychotherapist Scott Peck abandoned agnosticism for faith in Jesus after extensive study confronting the reality of evil inherent in human beings. And in his famous book, People of the Lie, Peck demonstrated horrific damage people inflict on one another when they're unwilling to face their own failures. And as a therapist, Peck observed countless incidents in his own practice that exemplified the evil of everyday human life and its horrible effects on innocent bystanders. There are, I'm afraid, evil po- people guilty of evil things. And it's not just them, it's us as well. The flying of planes into buildings and the steering of predator drones to bomb innocent women and children. The malicious gossip about your coworkers, the, the deep-seated rage that ekes out In the daily lull of traffic evil is carried out by our will by the will of others and by the satan and the spiritual powers at work in the world and believe me i know belief in a malevolent mostly invisible entirely spiritual entity is not in vogue belief in a spiritual realm is as real as the physical one is not currently hip um, to the Western secular mind, evil is an abstract, sometimes even a relative concept, but I believe evil is both personified and real. Evil is personified in a spiritual being the scriptures call the Satan, and in his spiritual powers at war with God, and all that God declares good and beautiful and true in God's world. And the scriptures give these entities all sorts of names, angels, demons, spirits, princes, powers, principalities, heavenly beings, uh, throughout the Old Testament, they're often called gods. Thus, to take both Satan and his freedom very seriously is crucial in developing a theodicy. In his book, God at War, Greg Boyd writes, when one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans and possessing intelligence and free will, there's simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. Even so, evil doesn't begin and end with Satan. In his, in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis describes a mistake we often make in assuming either Satan doesn't exist at all or else he is personally responsible for every flat tire, every parking ticket, every runny nose you've ever had. And I could be wrong. I doubt Satan gave you the runny nose. You know, he is, he is an omnipresent. Uh, if the most he was up to this week was giving you a runny nose, it must have been a slow week in the world. I think personally, Satan spends more time making people talk and text at the movies Or maybe heating up the room we're in right now feels that way. But there's an even more dangerous tendency in our enlightened, progressive world to discount the reality of Satan in the spiritual realm altogether. And then we're left to either judge people alone for evil or to judge God himself. Satan stripped from the equation. So God has freedom. Humans have freedom as do spiritual beings, and I would argue that the scriptures depict them as having power to influence reality to the detriment of God's world, which leads me to this idea of chaos. Of course, not all evil is easily traced back to a person or even a spiritual attack. What about what's often called natural evil? Earthquakes, tsunamis, avalanches, and since I take Satan in the spiritual realm very seriously— I believe that spiritual beings possess the power and ability to affect the natural order, even to a massive degree. And I believe this idea comes from the Bible in which Jesus rebukes the evil spirits who afflict humans with sickness with the same words he uses to rebuke a chaotic storm on the sea. But I also believe that we live in a war zone that continues to suffer in ways big and small, simple and complex, as a result of evil. So maybe an earthquake is demonic in the specific sense, or maybe tectonic plates are moving in a way that invites destruction because our once good world is now broken to a certain degree. In fact, science has shown recently through chaos theory that any given outcome could be the result of an infinite series of prior causes. One man sleeps through his alarm and thus leaves five minutes later than he usually would have. Now on the road, when he wouldn't otherwise be, he delays a pedestrian by about 45 seconds who then approaches as the a business only to find the owner on his way out to attend to some emergency. So that pedestrian turns to leave. They walk in front of a cyclist who swerves to avoid impact, loses a small package in the process. Now you are on your way to work. You arrive to the scene a moment later, yourself swerving to avoid the package, and then you ride up over a curb Blowing your tire. If that man had got up on time, if that pedestrian had not been delayed, if that shop owner had not stepped out, if that pedestrian had been paying attention, if the cyclist had not swerved, if the package had not fallen, well, then no flat tire. It's just random, complex circumstance. Nothing is static, everything is falling apart. So there's our will, there's the will of others, there's the will of Satan and the spiritual powers, and there's randomness and disorder. All these things contribute to the complicated ugliness in the world. So, with that in mind, let's, let's put this rubric to the test, shall we? Let's say that you've lost a job, for example. It could be that God is directly involved, and he has some lesson to teach you. Maybe, yeah? Or, or it could be that you sucked at your job. It could be that a, a co-worker wanted your job and was willing to lie or to cheat or to steal in order to get it. It could be any of those things. It, it could also be demonic attack on your life. If your job contributes to the flourishing of God's kingdom, I'm sure Satan doesn't care for it. It could be random, it could be economic downturn, your company was in the red. And and though this may seem frustrating, there's often no simple way to deduce which thing or combination of things were behind any lousy turn of events. It could be complex or messy or entirely ambiguous. And sometimes I think we can identify the cause or source of suffering as resulting from our own sin or from someone else or from Satan, and often we just can't. And I wonder if we sometimes run, run to the wrong question when we ask why? I would argue that as, as we scramble for an explanation to the problem of evil, God is after the solution. We want God to say something about it, but God wants to do something about it. And remember, the vast majority of Scripture is narrative. So rather than offer a philosophy, the Bible presents a story, one written, in essence, to tell the story of what God has done is doing, and will do about evil. And the story goes like this. A long time ago, God created a place that was very good, and he eventually creates humanity to partner with him in developing the potential of this new world. But... An evil presence has invaded and made war within God's good world. And this evil then leads the first human rebellion against God as king as human beings favor their own rule and reign, rejecting the rule and reign of God. Now, humanity, having thoroughly rejected God, has invited evil here to stay in the created order. But God is not through with humanity, nor with the world he's created. He sets to work on his great project to do something about evil by calling out a people, Israel, to set the world to rights. Only the people with whom God hopes to rescue the world are themselves in need of rescuing. And as Israel bumbles clumsily from one failure to another, God again resolves to do something about it. The story culminates in the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus arrives embodying the original role of Israel and humanity to faithfully partner with God in defeating evil. All of human history is loaded onto the shoulders of Jesus as Jesus carries the full weight of evil and its consequences to the cross and puts them to death. The resurrection of Jesus then becomes the fulcrum point in the story of God. In theology, the way that we understand and interpret the meaning of Jesus' death is called atonement theory. In the West, following in the influence of the Reformation, the dominant understanding has been something called substitutionary atonement. This is the idea we unpacked from Isaiah a few weeks ago, that Jesus died in our place. Jesus accepts a death sentence meant for us. Jesus dies and we live. We live, Jesus dies. And this is, of course, very true. But interestingly, for the first thousand years of church history, the dominant understanding of the atonement was something called Christus victor the victory of the Messiah. In Christus victor, the death and resurrection of Jesus mean the total defeat of Satan and evil. The spiritual forces of evil and injustice are undone on both an individual, society-wide, and cosmic level. And though the battle rages on for a time, even death itself will be undone and ultimately destroyed. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with the Messiah. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Later it is written, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And to this I say with all my heart, Christus Victor. And of course, we affirm substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor. Most atonement theories have shades of truth in them, but Christus Victor is the powerful concussive force that drives them all. Again, Greg Boyd writes, Christ's incarnation death and resurrection reveal that though God is not culpable for the evil in the world, he nevertheless takes responsibility for the evil in the world. And in taking responsibility for it, he overcomes it. On the cross, God suffers at the hands of evil, and in this suffering and through his resurrection, he in principle destroys evil. Through the cross and resurrection, God unequivocally displays his loving character and establishes his loving purpose for the world, despite its evil resistance. He thereby demonstrates that evil is not something he wills into existence. It is something he wills out of existence. Heck yes. But the story isn't over. Jesus' death and resurrection are the scriptures climax, not epilogue. The New Testament ends pointing forward to a day when Jesus will return to make his victory not only decisive, but comprehensive. In the story of Bible, this idea of judgment, it isn't Skynet's inevitable nuclear blast that so troubled Sarah Connor for years. (laughs) And the Bible judgment is about the ultimate healing of the cosmos, human evil, spiritual evil, natural evil, all undone. Today, as we weep and wail in the face of great evil, tomorrow we will cheer as it goes down to the grave for good. Though now we sit before an endless parade of evil and mayhem, Pakistani women burned alive, troubled teenagers loosed on killing sprees, mothers that stab their children to death, we weep with our eyes on the horizon. A day coming when Jesus will extinguish the fires of hatred and misogyny, when Jesus will dismantle mental illness and psychosis forever when the knives of the murderer will be dashed to pieces and when the children who died filled with fear and agony will be snatched from the hands of death, unharmed, and carried in the arms of Jesus to the great wedding celebration of the age to come. This is the hope of what disciples of Jesus call the gospel. In 2004, the world was reeling at the unfathomable suffering and death of nearly a quarter million people following a tsunami from the waters of the Indian Ocean. And with the event still in the news, one famous pastor published an essay in which he wrote, quote, Satan is not the decisive cause of more than 100,000 deaths. God is. And furious with this, Orthodox scholar David Bentley Hart published a response in the Wall Street Journal that went on to become his masterpiece, the book titled The Doors of the Sea. And in it he wrote, of a child dying and agonizing death from diphtheria, of a young mother ravaged by cancer, of tens of thousands of Asians swallowed in an instant by the sea, of millions murdered in death camps and gulags and forced famines, our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred, As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. It is a faith that has set us free from optimism and taught us hope instead. This is the hope stated again and again by the authors of the New Testament. To end tonight, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 what is, to my estimation, one of the most misquoted, misused passages in all of the scriptures. Here Paul writes of something called our present sufferings and about our hope for the future. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose." There it is. Hope. Of course, we know already that our hope isn't that no harm will ever beset us. I mean, Jesus, Paul, the apostles, seem to provide an example that suggests the very opposite. But our hope isn't that everything that happens to us is the will of God, either. Our hope is that no matter what happens, Jesus has defeated death. The kingdom of God is breaking in now, And it will come in full soon. No matter what evil besets us, God is working to bring good out of the evil he does not cause. And ultimately, he will destroy evil once and for all. And we've joined God in that battle today. We're not relegated to the sidelines of patience, but we work to drag glimpses of that coming future into the here and now. That is the very mission of God's people. That is what we'll talk about in the weeks to come. And though we often look out on the horrific evil of the world and rightly ask, why? What if we sometimes distract ourselves from the greater question of what? That rather than stalling out in the why of evil, we might join God in going to war with it. Evil, not God's will, but God's enemy. So as we face the reality of evil, I would encourage us to ask three questions. First, what is God going to do ultimately? We know how the story ends. All suffering this side of the resurrection is only temporary and en route to ultimate redemption. Disciples of Jesus are training for life in the age to come freed once and for all from the tyranny of sin, evil, suffering, and death. What is God going to do through this ultimately? How's God going to work to bring good out of the evil he did not want or cause? You know, Jesus has this incredible knack for taking the truly heinous things of life and somehow turning them on their heads, co-opted for good. Consequently, we can look to the immediate future with anticipation and weight and want of Jesus' healing power, his ongoing work to draw beauty from ugliness, to subvert the work of the evil one. And finally... Ask, what is God doing in me now? And we'll talk about this more next week, but for now, let me say that even though God doesn't orchestrate the hard knocks of life, they often become the crucible in which Jesus does some of his best work formationally. The trials of life can estrange us from God, or they can work to mold us more and more into the shape of Jesus, to develop the kind of maturity that leads to the freedom Jesus called life to the fullest. This is more than a good spin on things. This is more than upbeat Western optimism. This is the grounded, messy, incredibly beautiful hope that is Jesus, the King of the world. To end, let's consider these words from N.T. Wright. We're not told, or not in any way, that satisfies, satisfies our puzzled questioning how and why there is radical evil within God's wonderful, beautiful, and essentially good creation. One day, I think we shall find out, but I believe we are incapable of understanding it at the moment. In the same way, a baby in the womb would lack the categories to think about the outside world. What we are promised, however, is that God will make a world in which all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And we're given this promise not as a matter of whistling in the dark, not as something to believe though there is no evidence, but in and through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and in and through the Spirit, through whom the achievement of Jesus becomes a reality in our world and in our lives. We, as disciples of Jesus, are called away from the seat of uh, passive observance and into life marked by the active pursuit. Of healing the world. We as disciples of Jesus partner with God to bring evil to an end by working toward the shalom of the world and everything we do, and by, and by forgiving and blessing the evildoer. That way, our, our neighborhoods, our city, and our world become more like heaven. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. A little more for every effort we make. And on a coming day, That prayer on earth as it is in heaven will be answered in full once and for all. Let's pray.